This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me read you some scripture. Did you bring your Bible tonight? I know everybody brings their Bible to church, don't you? Wednesday night Bible study, right? 1 Timothy 2. Well, let's just do 1 Timothy 3. We may come back to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 3. And we'll start with verse 1. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are referred to as the pastoral epistles. These are letters written by the Apostle Paul to young men, Timothy and Titus, that he had appointed as pastors over churches. In verse 1, Paul said, The saying is sure, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. A bishop must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and snare of the devil. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be serious, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine. I guess they can indulge in a little wine, just not much wine. Not greedy for money. They must hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them first be tested. Then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. Interesting. The same issue to Titus. Turn over a couple of books to Titus. Chapter 1, essentially the same issue. Verse 4 of chapter 1, To Titus, my loyal child in the faith, we share grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I left but you behind in Crete for this reason, so that you should put in order what remained to be done and should appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Someone who is blameless, married only once, whose children are believers, not accused of debauchery, not rebellious. For a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or addicted to wine or violent or greedy for gain. Must be hospitable, a lover of goodness, prudent, upright, devout, self-controlled. Have a firm grasp of the word that is trustworthy in accordance with the teaching so that he may be able both to preach with sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Nothing about deacons there, interestingly. 1 Peter 5, last one. Now as an elder myself and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, so Peter refers to himself not only as an apostle but as an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you must clothe yourself with humility in your dealings with one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now those three texts have been discussed, argued, and debated for 2,000 years. And out of the debates have arisen many things, but in particular, forms of polity by which churches will govern themselves uh, have developed out of those three texts in particular. There are other texts in the book of Acts, but those probably are the three linchpin texts. In the history of the church, there have been almost as many forms of government as there have been churches. But with that said, I can tell you that there have been three chief forms of government in the Christian church and represented in this room are churches that have um, fallen into one of these three categories. Um, those of you from a Baptist background, your church is operated with a congregational form of polity or government, a strong democratic system vested in the congregation. Those of you from a Methodist, Episcopal, Orthodox, Anglican, or Catholic background, you come from a system of church government <clears throat> known as an Episcopal form. Episcopos is the Greek word that you just heard uh, translated a moment ago, bishop. And in those systems, Anglican, Catholic, Episcopal, even Methodist, some Pentecostal, Church of God in Christ, even the Church of God, to some degree follow an Episcopal form of government with a high level of authority vested in the system of bishops. And then there is a modified version of these two people from a Presbyterian background. I'll just go ahead and put Presbyterian. It's more of a republic, more of a, of a, it's a, it's a, it is a representative form of a congregational system that somewhere lands between these two forms. Now, what I can tell you in almost every one of these forms, uh, there is what we refer to as a plurality of leadership. There are church governing systems that fall into the category of singularity. And if one of these three forms of church government were given to singularity, it would be the Episcopal form with a high stock placed in popes, cardinals, archbishops, and bishops. But even within those forms, there generally are systems of checks and balances, and there is a plurality of leadership. Now, what all three of those systems, I'm not here to debate the three different forms of systems tonight. I think any of the three systems can make a fair case that they represent what Scripture was trying to indicate, and I think most of them would have to agree that there is no perfect capturing of the form that we um, see not dictated but demonstrated by Paul in the early church. And as a matter of fact, most theologians would agree that the early church was not the archetype, it was the infant. And they were wrestling with issues and they were fomenting forms of church government that we don't necessarily have to exactly capture because they're, um, even the explanations between the Petrine system the epistles of Peter and the Pauline system are probably pretty disparate. So I'm not here to argue these three forms. What all of these forms agree on is that there should be, whether you call them presbyteros, episkopos, 
uh, poyman or what is translated pastor, there should be in every church, there should, should be what are referred to, and many Bible translations leave off with translating episkopos, presbyteros, and poyman, either pastors, bishops, or presbyters. Many translate all three of those words just generally overseers. And the reality is that the Apostle Paul said that there should be overseers appointed in every city, plural. There should be overseers appointed in every city within the church to give oversight to the congregation. Now, within our congregation, and that's the question tonight, within our congregation, what is the system of oversight by which our leaders... Oversight breaks down into care, direction, wisdom, vision, crisis management, all of the elements of leadership. Our system of overseers is a three-tier system here at Grace Point, and most churches that I know have a three-tier system. Those within the Episcopal body of churches have what appear to be a two-part system. There generally are clergy and lay leaders within the system, and you ask, where is the third system? The third system exists within the denominational structures, the bishops who are outside of the church. Most churches have a three-tier system, not unlike our government. I'm not saying that our systems are all legislative, judicial, and executive, but most churches have a three-tier system. And we here at Grace Point have a three-tier system of oversight. This board and I have never agreed, and there is no good eraser. I don't know why anybody would make one of these, so forgive me while I do a little house cleaning here in front of you. Our system of oversight at Grace Point, our overseers break down into three groups. We have at Grace Point the clergy or the staff and at the behest of the clergy and the staff are the deacons we also have here at Grace Point a group that has always been referred to as the board of directors and interestingly in the first few years of our church we called them a board of elders and after about three or four years per their own resistance we quit calling them elders. They, uh, they literally felt like that that was uh, not a proper titling of what they actually did. In the last couple of years at Grace Point, we have added a third tier of leadership, and that third tier of leadership is referred to as elders. And even last night, this group that we know as elders met four hours, four hours. They're two years in. Um, one of the elders, Pam Bishop and I, actually began talking about this four years ago. The elders have actually been meeting formally for one year, and then there was a year of actual discussion before that. And even into last night, they were still talking about what exactly is the role of elders and how do we coalesce with the other overseers in our church. Now, someone would look at this automatically, and, and I can tell you, we have... We have nine elders, we have six board members, and that number can go up to 12, it doesn't have to go up to 12, and we have in the neighborhood of 25 deacons, 
And in terms of clergy and staff, we have nine. If you take just the staff, the board, and the elders, that's nine, 15, that's 24. We have specifically 24 leaders who are giving oversight, direct oversight and care to our church. Now, someone would automatically say, 24 leaders? That's a lot of chefs in the kitchen. And you're indeed right. That's a lot of chefs in the kitchen. But if these, and, and so far it has been the case, if these 24 leaders know their particular responsibilities and if there is good communication and cross-pollination between these three groups, um, generally the chefs get along really well in the kitchen and they end up producing really good work. Now, I think the million-dollar question is, beyond communication and cross-pollination, what does this group do, what does this group do, and what does this group do? And I can give you that generally. And I will tell you, part of the complexity of a three-tier system, this is true, I think, in any organization, uh, whether it's academic or the arts or whatever, but in terms of asking the question, what do these people do, they do distinct jobs but their jobs overlap. In the building of a building, in the construction of a campus, like we did five years ago, all three of these groups would be deeply involved. And Pastor Melissa Green would be deeply involved in the construction of a building because she's over our worship services and the way the room is set up and the way the platform is set up matters a lot to you. Anna Register, our children's director from the clergy and staff, you would suppose that she would have a lot to say, right, about what the children's wing looks like and how much space there is in the classrooms. You would also be sure that the board of directors would have a lot to say in terms of finances and what we have to spend and how we spend it and how we finance that, how we get it paid for. And I think you could also understand that elders would have a deep say in looking at our income, looking at our priorities, and asking ourselves the question, how big do we have to build? How much are we going to put into a building? How much does a church need to expend in ratio in terms of a campus versus missions and all of those questions? So almost every discussion we have here at Grace Point practically ends up being somewhat fractionally in the purview of every one of these groups. But I can tell you generally that the clergy and the staff deal with the day today operation or function of the ministry. The board of directors generally cover facility, finance, and HR. The elders, as we see their role and as that role continues to unfold, the elders contribute vision, wisdom, direction, spiritual insight. 
and generally have acumen in theology and scripture and what we call spiritual formation. And I will tell you that the clergy side of our staff also share this particular acumen of theology, scripture, and formation. Often the only difference between an elder and a clergy is that an elder has years of wisdom built up. They not only have these things conceptually, but they generally have a body of wisdom built up over a lifetime of experience. But this is the way that our leadership structure here generally operates and unfolds. And you can obviously see that on almost any issue. Take, for example, let me just give you a couple examples and then I'll open it up because probably the better explanations will come in response to your questions. But let me just give you an example. How does a person, how would a person get hired at Grace Point for a job? Generally, what will happen at Grace Point in terms of a job is someone within the clergy staff who is doing the day-to-day -day operation and function of the ministry. Let me just give an example. At some point, Jeremy Quinones within our youth department, hopefully as we grow, will come to the conclusion that he can no longer do ministry for 6th through 12th graders here completely by himself, even with the best of volunteers. And churches as they grow, a lot of churches when they get into the 1,000 to 1,500 range, finally begin to split. As a youth group gets over 100 kids, they come to a point where they have to split the junior high and the senior high, and a lot of time that ends up being two particular people. Often, one youth pastor will be over the whole thing and they will hire an assistant. Often, they will just divide it up and there will be a junior high pastor and a senior high pastor. So at some point, you could conceivably see Jeremy, if we grow, saying, we've got to have another youth pastor on board. That position, that request for a position, is hardly ever driven by elders or by a board of directors. It's driven by the people on the ground who start squeaking so loud because they're overtaxed in their job that they ask for help. The first place that this person asking for help generally goes to is to the board of directors. Because if we need another position, obviously that position is going to have to be paid for. The group that is over the immediate oversight of our budget is the board of directors. They have to determine how much money is being brought in and what percentage of that money we can spend, and they have to police that to some degree. Although I will say our clergy and staff who deal with the day-to-day -day expenditures of the budget, they never miss the budget by the end of the year more than one to two percent. So both of these are responsible in the collaboration for the budget. But the board of directors obviously have to make projections about how much we're going to bring in and how much we can spend. So the staff goes to the board of directors and say, we really need this position, at which point the board of directors simply says, we can do it or we can't do it. We have enough money or we don't have enough money. If the decision is made that there is enough money within our budget to add a staff member, then at that point on the board, there's an adjunct committee of the board, three members, uh, two members of the board, and Ron Miller, who's our administrator, who are an HR committee. 
and they request from the clergy member, they request help in accumulating candidates for the job. And in that process, generally two to three candidates are given to the HR committee, and the HR committee begins the process of review. Now, what the HR committee, who are not trained professionals in ministry, what the HR committee has to know is what is the job description. But once they know the job description, then they give themselves to the very business process of reviewing the candidates. Always the HR committee pulls one of us in, generally it's me, to ask me to meet with the person, not to see if they're fit for the job, not to see what their work skills look like, but to see if the person is ideologically aligned with us in terms of theology, view of God, view of Scripture. So it's a collaborative process all the way through, um, and that collaborative process generally happens between the board of directors and the clergy staff. I don't think that the elders uh, will be left out of that process because what we've seen is that in a lot of situations like this, the clergy uh, ends up going to the elders for collaboration and for, and for wisdom uh, in the process. So that's just one example of how you know, three different groups get involved in the same process. So that's the general overview of uh, the way Grace Point operates. Um, I could talk about that in detail more, but maybe, maybe it'd be good if you have questions. Does that make sense to you? Uh, is that resonant with the way the church that you came from or grew up in operated? Um, if it doesn't make sense, feel free to ask questions. If it does make sense and you have practical questions about that, I uh, would be thrilled to death to try to answer them. And a lot of the board members and elders are here tonight. You guys feel free to jump in with me and help me if you think you have something to add. Isn't that exciting? Y'all just look like you're riveted by this. That's just thrilling, isn't it? Coming together tonight to talk about polity. Don't run the aisles, okay? You're excited? Good. One of our elders, Lee, is excited, of course, because we're talking about you. Questions about this? Dave. Actually, it's not so much a question about the structure, but I know, you know, we find ourselves in a, in a turbulent time in the life of this church, and that I know that the clergy and staff there's been a contraction. The board of directors, there's been a con con contraction. The elders, I'm less familiar with. Um, I, I don't know what the number was or if, it, if that's held pretty steady through this. It's held steady through this, essentially. Uh, are, if the elders are here tonight, would you guys stand up? How many of the elders do we have? So who is... Who's missing? Dave Dalton, one, two, three, four, five. So we have two elders missing, Dave Dalton and John Starnes. So we have nine elders. Interestingly, one of our elders, John Starnes, is also a board member. Um, so we have uh, nine elders. So we held pretty steady with the elders. The elders were created recently in the last two years and were more ideologically aligned with the clergy than, um, than the board probably was. Thus the contraction. 
Do we have our, how many of our board members are here tonight? Don, Justin, Barbara's out of town, Bevan's back here, Big Daddy, where's Richard? Richard's not here tonight, so we've got, so who's, so we've got Barbara out of town and who, and John Starnes is out of town, so there's six board members, um, so they're here except for the folks who are out of town. I don't know if that answers your question, but you were wanting to know who the board was, who the elders were. That held steady, and it's simply because of ideological alignment, from my perspective. Yes, yes, there was contraction there, but only two of the 11, whereas with the board it was six of 12. With the staff, there was actually no contraction over the particular issue. Other questions, and you can press into this as much as you want to press in. That's, that's what this evening is for. Dwayne. Um, with, with the decision that was made recently start out, um, how much of each of these groups would have been a part of that? I guess. Yeah, the, so... This group was a huge part of that. This group was very much informed in the process as well. This group had been a part of a long conversation, but this group certainly felt that they were not as much a part of the process as they should have been, to which I, I would also agree. And we can, you know, we can look back at that and um, pick that apart nine ways to Sunday, and I think we have to, and I think the most important thing at this point is to learn and ask ourselves, if we had that particular issue to do again, how would that roll out? And uh, we certainly have spent a lot of time discussing that. I think, I think there are decisions that will be made in this church <clears throat> that are large enough that those decisions probably will require cross-pollination and consensus among all three groups because these are all overseers in the church. Um, one thing that the board of directors have always done is they've always pushed back and they've never tried to get into matters of theology and doctrine, ever. As a matter of fact, in the beginning when we used to refer to them as a board of elders, there was some conflict with that because we never have required of this particular group theological, scriptural acumen. And so any time we ended up talking about major issues like an LGBT inclusion, this group would always throw up their hands and simply say, that's not our pay grade and that's not what we do. And so I was continually left with only this group, who is a good group of people, but often the average age of this group was about 33. And so the real sense that was missing in our church um, was some gray hair and some age and some wisdom who also carried theological, scriptural, spiritual acumen. Thus, the elders the last couple of years developing. There was absolutely no pushback from the board of directors as I saw it to this. There was actually a sense of great relief. The only thing that the sitting board um, 
experienced a lot of chagrin over was not that they were not a part of the decision-making process in terms of theology. The thing that they were um, chagrined over was the lack of communication. So the issue wasn't who was making the decision as much as the information, how it was being communicated and how it was being rolled out. And so I don't think that we made a D minus in polity and decision making as much as we made a D minus in communication. Yes, Bob. In the uh, clergy and staff uh, section there, is there a, a voting structure? Is there, who's, who makes the decisions and, and is there a vote or? The or clergy, uh, in the clergy and staff, that's never been a voting system. Um, would the clergy stand and the staff, and that includes Steve and Pat? So, so we've got, this is the staff. We've got Randy, who works in uh, worship and arts with Melissa part-time. We've got Steve, who's over men's ministry. We've got Ron, our administrator. We've got Pam in parish care, particularly over prayer. Pat over women's, Anna over youth, Clint over communications, a lot of other stuff, and Melissa over worship and arts, and me over clergy. And we've got William, Brian Cochran, where's Brian? Brian, Stan? Brian and William have just come on uh, in parish care. They're volunteers, but they are actually doing the work of parish care. This group, we have never technically voted, have we? But we've always operated by conversation and consensus. In, um, I don't remember, y'all could chime into this. Has there ever been a point where we've wanted to vote? I don't think so. That's not really the way we operate. We, Anna handles children's ministry, and generally she informs us of what's happening in children's ministry, and sometimes the other areas have input, but I don't know that any of us, including myself, even as senior pastor, has ever wanted to override you or vote you down on something. So the way the clergy actually operates in their various ministries, uh, I may have wanted to vote Melissa down a couple of times, <laughs> but that's not the easiest thing to do. And probably everybody would have voted against me anyway. So that's not really a, a voting body, frankly. So who makes the decision then? We do. Who's we? The staff. The staff? The staff does. Go ahead and take the microphone. Well, I think it's noted that we spend every Wednesday morning almost four hours together, um, probably an hour of that, just talking through the logistics of the week. But the other one and a half to two hours is spent talking about the church and everything that's going on in the church. And so that's where those conversations and dialogues and pushback and learning from one another happens. So yep. that happens as a group. And in their ministries, seldom, I mean, there's feedback. I can tell you, I certainly, I certainly don't micromanage the different ministries at all. I, each of the people in these areas know their area better than I do, and I trust that. And they, um, they, I seldom disagree. When I do disagree, every now and then I win that. Most of the time I don't, because I, I trust them in their area. Now, that's practically the way we operate as a clergy. I can tell you that the board of directors actually does come to a yay or nay vote um, 
periodically, um, consistently, they do come to a yay or nay vote. Last night in the four-hour conversation with the elders, one of the questions was, are we going to begin to vote on things? And they voted, and it was a split vote on whether or not they're going to begin to vote or not. <laughs> and that's just the way it is. I mean, they, it's a bunch of wise people who are still, their disadvantage is that they're an incredibly important addition to the life of our church, but they're still in process with exactly how they're going to operate. And um, they, uh, they're going to operate very well, but in terms of how they're going to, if they're going to do it relationally and through consensus or vote, I personally don't think that it would be a whole lot different either way because that group are pretty good at disagreeing with one another. Nobody ever really gets talked into something by the others. That's part of the weight of being an elder. They all have strong minds, and they have a really good ability to not be overly sensitive and be able to disagree really well. And I watched them disagree last night over things. But, yeah, so that's the way the clergy operates. Jacques Renee? Um, <clears throat> Can you um, explain why it wasn't communicated to the congregation uh, with Jennifer's resigning and Leela's resigning? Can I explain? Yeah. Um, I can tell you that in retrospect, the conversation that's been happening amongst all three of these groups um, has come to the conclusion that we always should. And from here forward, we will. And that even that conversation, there was misgivings both ways because it comes down to proprietary information and trying to be fair with the people who resigned but ultimately, the decision was that in being fair to the congregation, no matter what the other elements are involved, they at least deserve to know, and it will be communicated as generally and politely and cleanly as we can without going into detail. So I can, I, I can tell you going forward that would be the case. I can tell you that there was no sense of hiding anything there was just a lot of variables and a lot of elements and a lot of wrestling with the way that it would happen and there was a lot of disagreement amongst whether it should or not and it never came to a clean decision but since then i think we've agreed clearly that it we can't avoid it it has to be done so yes Somebody get a working mic. Jessica, can you just holler real loud? To the congregation, um, my question is, I'm sure that as the I guess either miscommunication or lack of communication that has caused some of these um, people to leave, more or less. Like, what systems are now in place, or is there a change in the way things are communicated? And you said cross-pollinated between mm -hmm. these, like the staff, board, elders, 
and will there be uh, more clear communication amongst the congregation? Because I feel like some people left because they didn't have enough communicated to them. And well, I understand, like you said, there's going to be communicated yeah. about like changes, but I guess- Let me, let me tell you, um, that's a really good question. Let me tell you one way that um, we're gonna seek to do that better is Ron Miller, our administrator, our administrator, Ron Miller, is actually working right now on a team of people. And these three people will be referred to as facilitators. And I think right now, I mean, we're still in the process of conversing about this, but I think the facilitator will serve a one-year term and there will be a facilitator from the board, the elders, and the staff that will be responsible to not only convene the board meeting, but accumulate the agenda. The facilitator will not be responsible for the agenda, but the facilitator will be responsible to communicate with all of the board members and facilitate when the meeting's going to happen, lead the meeting, and make sure that the agenda is set for the meeting. Same is true of the elders and the staff, essentially already operates on a pretty fixed schedule with that, but there will be a representative from the staff. Now, the real key is not only will be these three groups be responsible for those meetings, which um, is a good thing, but these three leaders are going to be meeting either uh, regularly twice a month or perhaps even once a week. And these three people will meet, be meeting with Ron and myself. I'm roving everywhere. But they will be meeting and they will be discussing their agendas with one another, which I think will be incredibly helpful because all three of these groups often are discussing the same subjects from a different angle. It's like three different physicians with three different specialties looking at the same body. And I think, it's, I think it's going to be critical in terms of communication for these people to know what these two groups are doing and for these two groups to know what these are doing. Always before we've said in order to increase communication, we invited people from each of the groups to come into the other meetings, but that's, that's, everybody is so busy that that never works out really well. But I think if we have these three facilitators of each of the group responsible for the meetings, leading the meetings, and accumulating the agenda, and we have them on a regular base, basis meeting with one another, I think that will increase cross-pollination, let us know that we're working on the same stuff. Uh, it will certainly color the way we work on the stuff when we know what the other groups are doing. And uh, so that's interpersonal. Now, how that gets communicated to the church, I think, will be the responsibility as well of these three groups. But that's a complete, that's a totally new thing and I think we're all internally, nobody has any misgivings about that. And we're all pretty excited because we can already see how that's going to cut down on a ton of questions. Rachel, here, Randy's coming. Um, Mike's make me nervous. Um, what is the situation with membership of the church? Because we have, we have the inside of the church, the inside circle of staff members and elders and deacons and those types of things. And 
from what I understand in the past, membership is real loose. It's kind of like if you come here and you want to come here, you're a member here. Is, not not is that, quite. Okay. Not quite. Um, this is something that William Geis and Brian Cochran in our congregational care are talking a lot about right now. Membership here, there is a request form. And you can either get it online or you can get it at the welcome station. And that, huh? If you've signed up, you're a member. Um, so there is a request form and you fill it out. And the request form is, are you a follower? Are you a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? And are you willing to be honest with yourself, God, and others in community? You fill that and say that you're willing to do that, you're a follower of Christ, then we bring those to the staff. And as long as, I mean, even if you're an axe murderer, if you're a repentant axe murderer, we generally will let you become a member of, so she's in, right, Alexandra? Yeah. So then you become a member of our church. We also always request that if you're a member of another church, please let us know so we can request membership transfer and live in good relationship with the other churches. Now, to that end, William and Brian think, and I don't disagree with this, and they pretty much, uh, they're great ministers, they want to develop a more formal process by which you request membership and you, you actually go through a membership class, a process to get an understanding of the church and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, the reason why I'm asking in the first place is because Maybe when you're talking about communicating to the church and the congregation, the congregation consists of multiple parts also. There's members of, of, the, of the way that you've been doing it, um, and then there's visitors. But basically, if you provide an email, you're getting communication from the church, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe the way that you're communicating some of the more important internal issues to the congregations should be looked at in the form of like who's a member at our church and who has a vested interest in what we're talking about. And then there's everyone else who hasn't decided to become a member and doesn't necessarily want to take part in that type of decision. Yeah, we, we call those prospects. If they're a prospect and they're not totally bought in yet. Um, yeah, I don't disagree with that. Uh, Clint, Clint probably knows a lot about our membership, our, our list itself, and, and that probably is true. There are probably certain types of communication that we wouldn't want going to prospects. Might scare them off. No, it wouldn't scare them off, but it's just beyond their purview. Steve. Okay, I'm going to try to be concise. Pray for me, folks. Um, the question is, where do probably say members, uh, I would say a lay congregant, uh, as a lay congregant, where do I fall within this polity? Um, and then generally, I would like to ask if you have uh, a, a theology of polity. Maybe you can get a little more meat in that rather than just the administration. You really want me to get into this? Well, no, I'm, 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 you know, I'm saying the heart, the heart stuff behind it. Because yeah. you know, I, I went to a church for a while. It's a big church, and, and, and I was a member of that church. And every Sunday, the church would ask me, or would say, Thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Brentwood Baptist. Uh, it's a good church. Sorry, guys. They have a different poly. It's a it good church. It's true. Anyway, so, but yeah, it's a different poly. I would come, I would come to this place and it's like, wait, I'm a, I am a member. Are you talking to me? Because I, I didn't feel included. And then on the flip side, it was like, uh, well, you're, you know, you're talking to all these other folks. 
not talking to me. I didn't, I didn't really feel a part of it. it. Are you talking about the leadership, what's happening behind the curtain, uh, and then all the rest of us, right, these lay congregants? Or, or what is this dichotomy, this us and them kind of dichotomy? Yep. And it's not, just, it's not just that church, and guys, forgive me for, for calling the name. I didn't mean to do that. But, uh, but, it's, but it's many churches that I've felt. And ultimately, I think there's a, a type of dialogue that necessarily has to happen within polities, within any leadership structure. If I knew everything that you knew and did everything that you did, then I should be in your position. I don't. Right. That has to disseminate out. And I'm interested in the dialogue between uh, the members of the official polity and then the lay congregants. And also, are, is there a responsibility of the lay congregant to participate in the activities of the church as well. So not just the, uh, the, the leadership structure's responsibility yeah. to communicate to uh, the congregant, but the congregant's responsibility to the church more broadly. The church that I was baptized in had a very strong congregational system. The pa it was a Pentecostal church, but it was an aberrant Pentecostal church because the pastor had come from a congregational Baptist background. Every Sunday night after altar call, because we always had Sunday night altar call, we were very Pentecostal, we would then have a business meeting. And everything that we were going to do that week, all the way down to finances and buying a broom, would be voted on by the congregation. It was a strictly congregational system. Um, most congregations don't operate that way. Even those that call themselves congregational are generally representative democracies. So I think a really, you're married to the children's director. I think the real practical question would be, she has 200 children in this church under her charge. And that means she has about a, no, she has about 300 children under her charge. And those 300 children probably represent 400 to 450 parents. How much did those 400 to 450 parents shape curriculum, the way Sunday school classes are taught, how those classes are structured, who actually teaches those classes, how much do the 450 parents actually impact the ministry? And that's a very fair conversation. How much, how much does the congregation impact Melissa's song selection? How much does the board of directors impact her song selection? How much do the elders impact her selection as mutual overseers? And then how much does the congregation itself actually communicate we're probably never going to get to the place, and I don't know too many churches that would, that do congregational votes on every matter of decision-making. Melissa may want to do a congregational vote on whether we start doing more hymns or more praise choruses, but we're probably not going to do that. The real question is, in the lives of these people, operationally, how much do these people truly represent the congregation? And when you send senators and representatives to Congress, are they strictly representing the majority of the constituency or are they representing their own conscience and their own vision? And do they have a level of acumen and calling 
that may at times even go in a direction that is not the majority. Does Moses take a vote on how the exodus plays out? Or is there a sense of divine calling? Now, obviously, I come from a monolithic system where one per there was none of this. And there was a man of God. And all decisions came through that. And that was way overplayed. But I, I think, personally, that these people, everybody that I know in these roles, feel incredibly sensitive to and feel a sense of representation. But each of these people feel the distinct tension of how much am I representing the wants of the body and how much am I representing that I also am supposed to go to God and get vision for the direction of this children's ministry, music program, preaching, or whatever it is. So that, that tension exists. I think this polity is representative enough. I think it really depends upon these people. Are they attuned to the life of the congregation? Do you have influence in these people's life? Does the congregation itself feel like it has influence in these people's life? And I would say that we, beginning with me, probably have to do a better job of making these groups and these people accessible to the congregation so that when you do write a letter to the congressman, you actually think that it matters and impacts decision-making. But are we going to start having votes, congregational votes? Um, no. No, that would not be a form of polity that I think, I think that would bog things down in such bureaucracy because we would have to have about a thousand votes a week. Um, I, this looks functional um, and it looks, it looks pretty savvy and I think you're right when you say it's going to work as well as the individuals in those positions allow it to work. Uh, and I don't, I don't, would have no problem about voting. I don't need to vote. That's what, that's what you folks are all there for. But I think part of what I heard in one of the questions before was not so much about the voting part, but about the communication part. How do you talk, to, and this goes for any organization that has a, a, a structure, how do you talk to those people, the lay people? How do you talk to them so they, they feel they're a part of it? How do you communicate with them so when big decisions are made, they're told? They don't need to know that you know, we need a mop or a broom and stuff like that. God, don't tell them. I mean, I, I was raised, great, I was raised as a Catholic and we didn't have to decide anything. You know, I mean, it was really great because they just told us everything. You know, we didn't have to read the Bible. They just told us the parts to, to look at. So <laughs> I'm not advocating that at all. But I, I, I am saying about communication, I think that's probably one of the hardest things to address. And it's gotta be, a, it's gotta be part of the mission statement of the organization. I, I think when I'm listening to the elders talk right now, that probably is the chief issue that we're talking about. And you know, how you communicate, I think you can certainly use the Sunday morning pulpit to communicate. I think you can certainly do selective emailing to communicate. 
Um, I think there's another level of communication that that has to get um, that, that has to really become an organic part of the life of this church. I think the relationship of these people with the congregation is a huge piece of communication. I think we also, at any given moment, we have 25 to 50 deacons. I think if this group, via this process, because right now our congregation is crying out to this group for more communication, the problem is this group is crying out interpersonally for more communication. I think if this group communicates well amongst themselves, I think they will be very committed to the process of communicating to the congregation. And I think at this point, the congregation has got to have a clear line of sight to who these people are. I think this congregation has a clear line of sight to who I am. And that is an incredible bottleneck for a church that's growing. And I think that I, as communicant, have got to be replaced by a plurality of leadership and a plurality of communicators. I think it's a really, um, not diabolical, but I think it's a really unhealthy thing for a, for a constituent not to know who their state senator is, who their council member is, who their mayor is, who their secretary of state is. And I think that the deacons, staff, board of directors, and elders need to be so incredibly visible and infused into the organic life of this church that nobody here feels like they're more than three feet away to getting whatever they need answered, answered. And I think we have a large number of these people sitting in our congregation. And I, I think if a congregation doesn't have access and feel access to this group of people, then a congregation is left to talk among themselves. And a congregation of people, self-included, left to talk among themselves, you know what that's called, don't you? Gossip. It's where it always goes. Not because we're gossipers, but systems set us up for that kind of fail. And in the lack of information, guess what we're going to do? We're going to guess. And I would encourage you, our leadership, I have spent a lot of time with these people convincing them that I am very willing and ready to cede a lot of power and a lot of authority and a lot of influence. I'm past ready. This group of people is very capable of taking those responsibilities. I think you as a congregation have got to take the responsibility of knowing who these people are and when you have a question, going to the right person. There's a right person to go to and there's a wrong person to go to and these people can answer the questions for you. And if they can't, they can get the answer for you. Pat, let, let, you gotta talk to everybody. I was just gonna say our email is on back of the bulletin every Sunday and anyone that's on the back of that bulletin could answer any question anytime. Yep. So please, as we're taking responsibility, you take responsibility. Carol Brusagar, Carol Anglin, Lee Anglin, Pam Bishop, 
Mike Malloy, David Dalton, John Starnes, Van Calhoun, Paul Johnson, those nine people. Don Brooks, Richard Johnson, Justin Pitt, Barbara Casey, Bevan Hawk, Anna Register, Steve Wire, Pat Johnson, William Geist, Brian Cochran, Clint Ribble, Ron Miller. You have a lot of points of access. And I might be scary, but those people, I didn't name one of them that are scary. Carol Anglin is not scary. And she is an elder. And you can ask her anything. She may not tell you everything because there is proprietary information that is discreet. And there's just a lot of people here to trust and a lot of people here to get information from. And uh, I, I think the transition that we're making right now is a necessary transition. It's a necessary transition for me. It's a necessary transition for them. And the transition is going to be made especially effective if you will utilize it. Yes. I'm a uh, prospect and a back row Baptist. So uh, I understand what deacons do, but what do deacons do here? And then my other question is, how are the board of directors and elder groups populated? So let's start with deacons. Um, William or Brian, do you guys want to, you want to give it to William. William is over the diaconate and uh, this is, by the way, I mean, we have great volunteers here. This is not just William Geis. This is Dr. William Geis, who's been on staff at great churches, has a Ph.D. from Fuller, and he's a volunteer at Grace Point, and he's an incredible man. Talk about the deacons, the optimal vision, because when somebody says, what do the deacons do? Not nearly enough, because they have not been enlivened to do that yet, but that's about to change per William and Brian. Right. Um, one of our goals, you know, of my goals for this year, I've been here about uh, two weeks, I guess, stepping into part of the parish care role, is to activate our deacon body. We, right now, as the number says, we have about 25 active deacons. And over the next several months, we're beginning a, a really kind of a discipleship training process with them to help everyone really understand what the biblical roles of deacons are. And so, long term, what we're hoping to see with our deacon body is actually see them leading through service um, in areas uh, like hospital care, crisis care, shepherding people through situations um, that, are, um, that are tough, or even shepherding th people through big life moments, helping in serving in sacramental services that take place here at the church. Um, our deacons will model leadership for our church. One of the things, and I was, I was thinking this in the other part of the conversation earlier, is one of the reasons that I think that stepping up the membership uh, process is so very important is so that we all um, can hopefully see and grasp and understand that this is our community and find our role and our place in it. And we hopefully all have a place that we can find a place to not only be a part of the worship gathering or fit into a group of some kind, but also serve our community as well. We believe the scriptures teach that we're all gifted to do that. And so as we go forward, it's my, it's my goal, it's my dream that the, um, that the deacons will be the people that model that and lead out in that in our church. When you see someone who's serving in our diaconate, you go, that person's a servant. I see Jesus in them in the way that they live out their life, giving themselves up, giving their time and their resources for others. 
And um, so this is kind of a, a blank slate for us right now. And um, over the next several weeks and months, we're going to be asking people to step into those roles and lead through service. Thank you. That's a good explanation of deacons. In terms of uh, the board, congregation can, is asked every year to nominate people to be considered for the board. There are years that we have 20 names turned in. There are years that we have three names turned in. Generally, we'll have 8, 10, 12 names turned in. The sitting board then reviews those names and finds candidates out of those names. And out of those, the candidates that are selected, one, two, or three, come to the congregation at the business meeting, and it's a democratic vote. And every person is voted on yay or nay. A lot of churches... Actually, most churches vote on their board members congregationally. A lot of churches actually, not a lot, but a good number of churches um, run people against one another. I think that's just awful that two people are running and somebody loses in a vote against one another. So we let the person run against themselves in a yay or nay vote. And that's the way new board members. So it comes from the congregation through the sitting board and then a congregational vote, yay or nay. Elders, um, the sitting elders will look for elders within the congregation. It is the belief of this church, and I think the belief of most churches, that elders uh, are recognized. They are, not, they are not made by a church. We didn't look out at Lee and Carol Anglin and say, hey, we want them to be elders. We looked out and said, Lee and Carol Anglin are elders. We want to recognize them. So the actual ordination process of an elder is actually the acknowledgement of the church and the reception of the church of that person formally into their life in that position. And most generally, we right now, we spent a lot of time last night talking about the fact that there are elders in this congregation who are not serving right now uh, in the elders group. And it's the responsibility of the setting elders to recognize that and to pull them in at the appropriate time. And so the ordination service is where the congregation recognizes that. So it comes from, it comes from the elders themselves. So I don't appoint board members. I don't hire the staff member. And I don't um, appoint an elder. There's even question about whether... I myself am an elder, and in most systems, specifically the Presbyterian system that uses a consistory uh, or a session of elders, generally the senior pastor is the um, presiding elder, they call him. Uh, I don't even know. I, I'm pretty satisfied as the church matures for me to be a roving presence and to not necessarily have positional power on paper, but to have as much power and influence as I actually merit through the confidence of the people that I'm working with. I think that's the safest way. Any effective pastors I've ever seen had no need of a technical constitutional role. They were men and women of influence who were trusted and earned that. And so I'm, I am willing and ready to seed so much of this and me be able to just bring what I bring to the table and hopefully I spend enough time with God and have enough acumen that I will be influential in all of these places.
Oh, Teresa first, then Leo. What is the church's vision for our small groups ministry, and will the deacons be shepherding the small group leaders, and would that be a source of liaison to the lay congregation? Did you hear the question, William? Can you answer that? Would you repeat that question one more time as he's getting the microphone so I can hear it in my head? What is the church's vision for our small groups? Yeah. And will the deacons be shepherding our small group leaders so that they can liaison between clergy, board members, elders, and the direction of the church and, you know, be the liaison to the congregants? Um, part of my role as well is, gonna, is working with groups and doing training here. Um, so one of the things that I've been doing this last two weeks is actually talking with our small group leaders that we have and seeing exactly what's going on in our groups. We have a, a good number of groups here um, at Grace Point spread out all over the place, um, actually starting three new groups um, in the next couple of weeks, which would be an exciting thing for us. Uh, one of the things that is interesting about the groups that we do have here and I am excited about as compared to some other systems I've been a part of, is we have varying kinds of groups. We have groups here that are fellowship groups. There are groups that just get together and share a meal, um, maybe pray together. We have some groups that are study groups. We have some groups that rally together around serving in certain ways, which is a great thing. And so we hope to be able to create enough spaces where people can uh, jump in and be involved in a place that they find value and they find community, something that helps them, them grow in their faith. Um, and something that, you know, it works for them in their, in their context. As far as the training piece of it right now, um, I don't see that that would be a thing that the uh, deacons will do. I will actually do that um, on an ongoing basis with our small group leaders, um, equipping them, training them, being a resource there, really kind of a coach for them uh, along the way. Um, and then the last part of that question, I'm not exactly sure. Um, maybe you could clarify that a little bit more for me. What do you mean kind of as a liaison between the groups and those boards. Is there something particular? Um, that, if the clergy, the board members, and the elders are giving direction for the church, um, since we don't always get communication from the stage, on Sundays, will that be communicated in a small group? Or? Yeah, she's asking, could the small groups themselves, because generally small groups in a church are, are people who are intimately connected to the church and are vibrant parts of the church. Can the small groups themselves actually be modes of communication? Oh, I, absolutely. I think absolutely, and we've, we've utilized them that way before. And, yeah. and that goes both ways. That lets the, the groups that are on that board right there that they're, they're modeling leadership, um, that gives a, a great pipeline just for communication out to those people who are actively plugged in. Um, and involved in the church. It's a huge the responsibility, time, the yeah. That are in the group. Right. They funnel information back through their leader that comes back. Right. So that we know what's going on in the community. Yeah. Good. Leo. Uh, groups like the elders, are, how are they structured? Do they have chairperson, assistant chairperson to run a so-called organized That's meeting? what we were just talking about over here, Leo. Every, every year there will be a facilitator of each group, a leader of each group who is responsible in each of the groups to call the meeting, set the agenda, run the meeting, and communicate with the other groups what they're doing. So yes, there will be a point person in each of the groups. And that's 
new, by the way. Pam, one of our elders and staff members. Just quickly uh, to uh, a few of the things that, that uh, I have heard. Uh, when Stan and I began talking uh, about uh, what we wanted and what we envisioned uh, from the elders, and this is one thing that uh, in the time that I've known uh, Stan, uh, that um, he is very charismatic uh, and, and, uh, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, but I have met with him in many situations and I am, as if I had money to bet on it, uh, my mom used to say that she bet the farm on it. So I bet the farm, uh, if I had one, um, on his vision. He has one of the clearest visions I've ever come across. And I've, I've worked with lots and lots of people. It's something you can hold on to. I'm an old school teacher and an old rocker, too. But uh, I've taught 30 years here in Williamson County uh, and retired. And I, I wanted to teach ever since I was five. That's, that's me. Uh, that's, that's what I wanted to be. That was my calling. Who would have thunk I'd have another calling at this age? But it happened, and, uh, uh, and I'm very grateful. And for me, as an elder, uh, what I want to do is to fulfill this last calling. I just want to end well. I just want to end well for him. And so whatever comes up in these elder meetings, and uh, I hope I never get elderly in those meetings, but what comes up for me time and time again in this is I'm not in it for me anymore. Hmm. I'm in it for all these that could have been students of mine. Uh, and that's to me, is the core of what I am as an elder. Stan has, been, has given me a lot of guidance. I'm a pretty literal thinker. Just a couple of minutes ago, I sent him a note and I said, there's really 10 elders. Uh, because we always included him as an elder. The elders started out as a very organic group, uh, meeting for lunch at the golf club uh, weekly, and just conversations. And as time has gone on, uh, just some wonderful things have happened uh, uh, in, this, uh, in this group. So um, uh, I can tell you that every one of us uh, that you can call or stop, and we'll be as honest with you as we can. Um, we don't always agree with each other. We don't always agree with Stan. Um, Seldom these days. Well, that's, that's another thing. That's not true. But anyway, I, I just wanted to, to take this opportunity uh, uh, to, uh, to tell you uh, that uh, this elders group, which really is sort of, we're in, maybe not our infancy, but we're toddling around right now and trying to make some decisions. Uh, but we always have room to listen to what you have to say. Uh, and uh, we'll try to uh, get out something where you could, uh, our emails or something, uh, 
And uh, that's, that's what, I think that's what most of us elders want to do. We have a few elders that are working too, so they have uh, uh, a lot of responsibility, but um, uh, I just wanted to take Thank this you. opportunity. Very, very well said. Uh, Steve. Thank you, Stan. So I've been here from the beginning. And I deal with guys, and guys ask real simple questions. And Stan, you know my friend Rob worked for a big church in Nashville that was a church of Christ, and their governance, basically, their board hired and fired the pastor. And <laughs> I don't know if you all have ever been part of those churches, but there are churches that do that. And the question that I hear over and over again that just probably needs the simplest of answers is as we go forward with this structure and these leaders, who is the pastor accountable to? That's the big question that I hear over and over again. And I think that's probably what created confusion earlier this year. So can you address that? Yes. Personally, the question is, not only who am I accountable to, Who am I accountable to, but who can fire me? Because who can fire me is actually who I'm accountable to. Besides God, I hope you all know that I think I'm accountable to God. But there are two groups that can generally fire a preacher. And each one... and this is the same group and bishop would represent the denomination. Right now our bylaws is that I can't get fired by this group. I can get fired by this group. Now, how many of you come from a background where the preacher could get fired how many of you don't know in your background how the preacher could get fired? This is an ugly conversation for me to be having, but it's a good conversation. It's an important conversation. How many of you come from a background where the congregation could fire the preacher? Please raise your... How many come from a background where the representatives could fire? A little more on this side. Our church is here, and... At this point, constitutionally, the only thing they could fire me on are moral grounds. And for that reason, our board has been in the process the last couple of years and it's kind of ground to a halt and I think the elders probably will get involved and I think the, uh, the board would actually welcome, welcome them into that process of reviewing our Constitution because I believe our Constitution itself needs to be revised. And I think that who can actually hire and fire the preacher is a significant part of a church's Constitution. And I can tell you that I believe a congregation 
either representatively or democratically. That's, that's something that the elders and the board will have to discuss through. And I will tell you, I will be very little a part of that conversation and I have no desire to be a part of it. And I mentored under a guy who for 59 years was faithful enough that I don't think he ever worried about how the congregation could fire him. Because if I ever get to the point where the congregation wants to fire me, I ought to have good sense to resign. Hopefully I'll never be there. But I think there should be grounds other than moral. Like performance. And performance is something that is a multifaceted diamond. And I, I think... Um, so that's all going to be reviewed constitutionally, but that's how it is right now. Does that answer? That's as far as I could answer that tonight. Can we talk about something other than me getting fired now? <laughs> Heather, it's a good question. That's an important question. And forgive me if this has been covered before I was able to make it in this evening. Um, I was wondering, um, with the dramatic change in um, staffing that we've seen and um, the flux in um, Sunday service um, attendance, I was wondering how this is going to affect the volunteer situation, because I understand that there's a lot of people that have been leaned on very heavily and because of perhaps new faces we may see, they might want to fill in some, some gaps. And how, how do you think we're going to be addressing that in the hopefully near future so that people don't get burned out? Well, the million dollar question is right now. And it's a very important question, and I'll have, to, I'll have to leave it with you. Volunteerism is one of the major discussions we're having in our staff meetings right now. And I can tell you that the staff itself is very critically assessing how do we generate more volunteers. And they have some things that they're discussing that are, that are just beyond the scope of what I'm comfortable talking about here but they're working really hard on volunteerism one of the issues that is a sticking point in their mind as to how they're going to go about getting volunteerism I'm stuck on myself and it's one of the things that I wanted to throw out to the elders tomorrow to get some wisdom on yes yep you may as someone wish who wishes I had more time to volunteer and I try to when I can um, and this may not work for everybody, but um, just being real with people, you don't have to try to dress it up, but bottom line, genuine truth and facts. I mean, if we don't have enough volunteers, then certain things aren't going to be able to continue. And that's just a fact. And just being real with the congregation, and you don't have to try to have a fanfare about it or have a gimmick, but... Just being honest. And yeah, and periodically we do that. Yeah. We use the pulpit to just make direct yeah. addresses. I for, think that would yeah. work pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mel, you want to 
speak to that because you were I'm in the conversation. I was just going to say, just a side note, a lot, what's exciting too for the staff and for these 20, the 24 of us and the overseers is that so many of these new people that are so excited about finding a place like Grace Point are ready to jump in feet first. And they're asking us, how can we help? They're not just saying, sign me up for membership. They're saying, and now how can I help you serve? And so that's so encouraging for us. And you should know that too. Yeah. Bob. Staying on a positive direction, we're not, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not going to talk about you getting fired, <laughs> but supposing you want to leave the church, uh, and, and it's being non-denominational, it's not, it's not backed by anything other than, other than here, and so I would like to know if there's a kind of a continuity plan uh, that would address that situation, and also I, I, along that line, who owns this church? Who, who are the owners of the church? Now, this, uh, to that, this church is a 501c3. So a nonprofit organization actually is, um, in its nonprofit status, it is not owned by the board, it's not owned by the elders. It is the responsible charge of the board of directors. And if it shut down today, whatever resources it had after all debts were paid, would have to be transferred to another nonprofit organization at the behest of the sitting board. So nobody, um, nobody, because it's a 501c3 and regulated, could liquidate and take anything. It would have to be transferred per the directive of the board to another 501c3. So that's it's really not technically owned by anybody, whatever accrues on the positive side of the ledger would have to go to another nonprofit. What was the first question? Oh, succession plan. Succession plan probably is one of the most significant concerns of this church. Um, and I think it's been a conversation of the board for some time. Don, we've been talking about that almost from the beginning, but especially in the last couple of years. I think it's an important conversation that the elders will also be joining in. The fact that we are now part of the effort for us to reach outside of our walls and begin to connect with these people that are like-minded, like Greg Boyd. One of the extensive conversations I have with Greg Boyd is, Greg, we've pretty much made the decision here not to be a denomination. He is coalescing a group of like-minded, non-denominational churches. So we're trying to connect with the Phyllis Tickles, the Brian McLarens, the Greg Boyds, these people to develop a nexus. We have a sufficient enough nexus, and this church is well-known enough now that if I step down, there would be a significant line of people wanting to try out for this church. And that's a completely different thing than, it would have, than we would have faced even three years ago. But we've been in the news recently. And a lot of people know about us, and there are a lot of pastors who would want to come and pastor this church. My desire, my desire would be to do it the way that I think is, is modeled biblically, but it's not the only way, and it's the way that I was taught by my mentor, L.H. Hardwick, and that, I, and that is that I would love from within our staff there to be prominent enough developing ministers that it almost naturally organically develops possibly even from within who could be the next successor pastor hardwick always said the benefit of that is there's no major transition especially following a founding pastor what a lot of churches experience is after a long time founding pastor 
which I intend to be a longtime founding pastor, is the next one or two, if they come in from the outside, they generally are so external to the culture it doesn't go well, and it takes two or three for a church, and a lot of non-denominational churches with a longtime pastor end up not doing well. And you see Dr. Schuler. I mean, the church folds and sells to the Catholic diocese afterwards. So, you know, my, uh, my plan is to develop ministers here among us um, who begin to grow, and we might even see who those natural fits are going to be, who the church would actually want. So that's just a thought, but it's not the only way to look at it, but it is, a, it is certainly a concern. But good news, you would be okay if I drop dead tomorrow. I don't want to be fired or drop dead. This is getting morbid. But if I did, there would be a lot of good people signing up wanting to come and try out for this church. Yeah, Justin. One of our board members, newest board members, Justin Pitt. Um, Justin Pitt, I'm on the board. I think I know most of the people here, but I do see some new faces. Um, to echo what Pam said in terms of communication, um, I'm here all the time. I've got little kids. I teach Sunday school. Uh, I'm on the prayer team. I'm on the, in the card network. So come find me if you've got a question. I'll tell you what I can tell you. Obviously, there are a few things that we can't talk about. I mean, we are both a church and an employer. And there are certain things in employment context you can't talk about. And, um, but I'll be forthright with you and tell you that. What I do want to talk about, though, for some of the new faces, and I heard my brother back row Baptist back there, I'm a Southern Baptist, former Southern Baptist myself, is I think a lot of us have been raised to be consumers of church and not participants in church. And one of the things that I've seen in this church since I've been here in the last over three years is this church has turned into its own community. And even though we've seen uh, a disruption here recently that for some of us was very difficult, and we've seen people leave that we really care about, what has remained here is a really close community that sits independent of any charismatic leader or any board member or any elder or anything like that, but a group of people who are really united to the idea that God loves all of us and we are all welcome here. So my hope is for those of you who are new that, that you won't feel like there's, a, there's a, a prep time before you become not just a consumer of this church, but a member of this church. Or that you feel like the filling out of a form or waiting on a class or that sort of thing. We want you into full membership. We want you into full participation. We want you into full community as soon as possible. If you've got a question about how this place works and you're thinking about becoming a full member, come talk to me, I'm here. But, but for us, I think when we talk about volunteers, when we talk about the financial picture for this church, when we talk about where we're going, we've got a good board, guys. Um, we, we've got six people who don't have big egos when it comes to this place and want to do the right thing. We've got good elders. We've got a good staff. We really want you new people. And, and those of you who have been consumers of this church and are moving more and more into participation, Please keep coming, because it's a great thing. Thank you. Others? I'm sure this is not exhaustive answers, but at least we're, I think we're getting to some of the... Okay, y'all, now you know how you can fire me and you're ready to be done. Okay, good. 
Yep, Dave. I don't know what your thinking would be on this, but you know, with, with the sea change that we've undergone in the last months, um, do you think it would be a good idea at some point to just do sort of a on a Sunday morning kind of a state of the church to kind of, uh, you know, because of the large number of new people who are going, you know, who are here already and who will continue to come, but also just to sort of settle I mean, there's a lot, you know, my sense is that there is some anxiety, some uneasiness about what's happened. Who, you know, you know, we've talked about who we are, but you kind of re, uh, reinforce the vision of what, you know, what Grace Point Church Kind of a is. who is Grace Point state of the, uh, who is Grace Point to really clarify yeah, I, I don't think that would be a bad idea at all. I think that's something for the for the elders especially to consider. You know, um, we've got lots of new people. We've got lots of new people. And we have a very distinct... I appreciated what Pam said a while ago. I, uh, any church that has a charismatic founding pastor with an inflamed vision is going to make it, dependent upon the effectiveness of that senior pastor, about a decade on the energy of that, of that scenario. And it will either shift and mature from that, and the shifting and the maturing has to be um, a spreading out of that vision, a spreading out of the ownership, that vision either has to be shared and then run with or the organization will begin to become cultic and eventually if it's filled with intelligent people it will die. If it takes advantage of less enlightened people it can actually grow and get cultically large. Our people are not that latter group. They are intelligent people. And this church organically is demanding that the plurality of control, influence, oversight, and leadership expands beyond this one person. Uh, my own heart and psyche demands it. I will tell you that I am thrilled and relieved, and only time will prove it, to cede so much of the responsibility and oversight. I'm thrilled to death if this board wants to start waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning worrying about finances. I'm thrilled. I'd love to cede that to somebody. I am thrilled to death to cede to these 24 people And these 25 people, the leadership and the function of this church, because I believe all of them trust me and I believe all of them want whatever it is of God and direction and leadership that I bring to the equation, and I will do that. But I'm thrilled to see this, and I want to tell you why. Because these people share something that I have been hoarding and controlling and I would not let go of 
if it killed me, and it almost did. And I am just now there with the leadership of this church and this church, and the thing that I have been meticulously hoarding and controlling and I would not let go of, I have told them you will be surprised how little involvement I want in buildings and what you do with children's ministry and how you run music and how you communicate and whatever the deacons want to do and however William wants to run the diaconate. You'd be amazed, Steve, at how much you just do men's ministry. I trust you. You know more about it than I do. But I tell you what I have clung to and I have fought for and I have not had unanimity here. I've had majority, but I have not had unanimity. And some of the people I didn't have unanimity work with are my best friends. It has nothing to do with who's good or bad. I could not. Five years ago, I realized there was a church that I, in good conscience, could pastor. And I knew that my time was running out at the church that I founded. And I knew that the church hadn't changed, I had. And it was nobody's fault. But I also knew that I would not be able to continue at a place that did not share and espouse the theological vision I had, the perspective on God, the gospel, and people that I had. And the LGBT community is just one portion of that. I knew I couldn't. And I made a decision several years ago to take this group of people and the congregation on a conversational, catalyzing journey so that hopefully Grace Point could be a place that I could continue to serve in good conscience. We have had good people leave here because they conscientiously do not share this vision and they will remain our friends. I understand the need to leave a place because you don't share the theological vision because that's exactly where I was going to end up. I could not continue to refuse certain children of God communion, sacraments, and full inclusion. So I knew it was either going to be me, and I can tell you, you say, well, you're just one person. Yeah, but I was one pretty big person in the construct of starting a church. And all the way down to the end, there wasn't any of these people who wanted to fire me. But we had a different vision. And how I helped bring this church to a place where we now have a unified a unified enough vision may have flaws, frailties, and fits and starts. But 
hopefully I will, you will learn from those flaws, frailties, fits, and starts. But I am so incredibly relieved now because for the first time in five years, I look at our congregation and I look at this group and I think, I can serve here in good conscience. I can be here now. I can shepherd these people and serve faithfully and raise my children here. Some have left because they cannot raise their children with a church that includes the LGBT or espouses the gospel the way we do. I could not have raised my children here if we didn't. So it was coming down to, and I, I want to just tell you, I've told, and they probably wouldn't want me saying this, but I've told the board and elders, I have tossed and turned the last few weeks because the last thing I am is a dictator and the last thing I am is a hoarder of power. I'm just not. I'm not. It may look like that because I was fighting for this and I was there 12 years ago and I knew then honestly what the vision was and we tried something I tried to be conciliatory and bring people together from all sides but I finally realized there are some issues that people can't compromise on and they are just too big and I couldn't compromise on this one and y'all were either going to end up replacing me or developing a church where I could pastor. And I think a lot of the pastors and a lot of the elders and a lot of the board would say the exact same thing now. But I've rolled over in my bed the last few weeks because I don't like the way that I've been perceived through this. But that's nobody's fault. It's just part of the process and I'll take it on the chin. And I probably merit a good portion of it, not all of it. But I have rolled over and I've thought, oh, maybe what I should have done five years ago is tell them, the leaders, I can do this a little while longer, but I can't do it forever. I cannot, I cannot bring my children to a church where Antonio can't sing. I cannot have my daughter in a Sunday school program where Mary can't teach. I can't. And maybe I should have just told everybody, I can't do that, but I've gotten in this far with y'all. I'll give you three years. Instead of a three-year conversation to get the church over the hump, how about a three-year conversation to figure out how to replace me? And I've thought about that, and I've thought maybe that's what I should have done. But I didn't. Because the majority of the leaders was, were exactly where I was. About two-thirds of them were where I was. And I estimated, I poured over our list of 2,200 people, and I estimated that 60 to 70% of the people were where we were. And I thought, we can do this. I'm looking back now, and I'm thinking my estimate of 60 to 70% may have been overshot just a hair. But there are no grand certainties, and I don't know. All I know is I look out at a congregation now, and I look at a body of leaders now, and I can tell you 
this staff, this board, and these elders will experience me as a visionary and a spiritual man that they can draw down on who is very satisfied to let them operate in their full giftings and do the stuff they need to do and carry this vision forward. I'm so satisfied that I'm out of the pulpit last week, this coming week, next week, I'll preach once, then Melissa will preach, then I'll preach twice, and then a young lady named Melissa Reginelli will preach. And I never have been hoarding the pulpit because I'm an egomaniac who wants to preach all the time, but I was hoarding the pulpit because I didn't want something saying some, somebody saying something other than this. I love the fact that I can get out now because there's all kinds of people that are saying this. You'd just be surprised how much I'd love to let all of this go, but I wasn't going to let this go because that was the vision from the beginning. And I look out at our church now, and in the midst of the pain, I see that vision. I'm like, I like this church, and this is, this is a church I can pastor now. And that's the story of what's happened here. And the only way I can prove it to you is to tell you, just give some time. You'll see it. Promise you, you'll see it. You'll see it. And I think those that are leading with me uh, are already seeing it. And, but there's the story behind the story. So, sure, there's a lot more to talk about. Would our staff, our elders, and our board please stand up right now and remain standing? I can tell you right now, gossip is a sin, and you don't have to do it. Because these people know just about everything and they are wonderful pastors and they can tell you whatever they need to know. And if they tell you they can't tell you, trust them. These are really good people and it's a really good process and I'm looking forward to doing this. And if anybody senses a flippancy in me that I'm looking out and seeing, I wanna tell you part of me is looking out and seeing a wonderful church that I can pastor now and I'm exhilarated. But part of me is so deeply grieving I know that we've lost dear people, but none of y'all loved them any more than I did or were with them any longer than I was. I've loved these people, and I am also deeply grieved because we have lost some of them, not because of the theological vision, but because of the communication, because of the confusion, and that's my fault. That's my fault. And I got to live with that. And I'm, I'm not perfect, but I think I'm a good leader. And I think I have half sense and I'll learn. And I am trying my best to not beat myself up because this has not been an easy process. And there was no perfect human way to do this. And coming out of Egypt, 
the process is lice, gnats, frogs, bloody rivers, and lots of complaining. But we dare not lose the vision of where we're going now because this is a wonderful, wonderful process. And uh, sorry for my failures, but my heart's open to you, and there's a really good team here. And I think we've got a grasp on the gospel that has an opportunity. I'm telling you, the church and the nation is looking at us right now. And I can't even think about the church and the nation looking at us right now because I'm just trying to stabilize a congregation so they'll have something credible to look at. Because if we don't pull this out all the way through lovingly, then it's just an ideology and you just write a book about it. I want the book to be a congregation who actually does it. So to the extent that my failures could have jeopardized that, my life is submitted to the board, the elders and the staff, and I will do better. And their lives are submitted to you. Submit yourself to them and we'll do the good work of God here, I believe. Lynn, or Cindy. so excited about the decision that has been made and we want to hold hands with you and we want to get to know you we know that you're hurting and it it hurts when you lose people that you love but I think I want to remind you and we want to remind you that we are new and we have been so looking for a church like the vision that has been cast we love Jesus more than anything. We know that you do too. And our hope is that you will have places in your life and in your heart for us too. Because we want to walk with you. And we want to help however we can. And again, I just, uh, I just share this as part of the new people who have come here just within the last month or month and a half and we love what's happening and we want to hold hands and be a part of this new family of faith that is forming I have received over 700 <laughs> I have received over 700 emails from people around the world thanking us with that same spirit, and they represent millions. We have a good thing here. Let's be careful to steward it well and not let our frailties as humans. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the power and the glory might be of God and not of us. So Lord, we conclude tonight by lifting to you our earthen vessels. We are we are Dixie cups full of liquid gold, the treasure of the image of God in us, the beauty of the human soul. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our midst. Thank you, Lord, for a congregation who cares for one another enough to get through the bumps and the hurdles. And thank you, Lord, for lifting our eyes above the fray. Thank you for what Cindy just said. Thank you for reminding us of the vision 
O Lord, may those who come out of Egypt actually make it to the promised land. May we not eat one another in the meantime. May we get there. And remember, this isn't just about the generation that comes out. This is for the hundreds of generations yet unborn. This is for our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. This is for the generations that they might live in the proper place. May we remember that. Thank you for what Pam said. This is for them, the democracy of the unborn. May we get up, may we get out, may we sojourn well. And may we get to the place that you've called us. I think we're there, Lord. And it's time to cross Jordan and live this gospel out full and whole and free. Thank you for this good church. May we be good to one another now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Thank you. Important night. <clears throat>